This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to The Limits. I'm Jay Williams. Listen to this idea from Marcus Samuelson. If you really think about it, being a chef is a lot like being an athlete. You wake up earlier than anyone else. You work harder than anybody else. You practice every day. At least you do if you want to be one of the best. And Marcus Samuelson is one of the best. And the, one of the blessings about being black is that there's less choices which create clarity. Think about it. Your limits can create clarity. What's clear about Marcus is that he's one of the most successful chefs in the game today. He's got restaurants in multiple countries, including the world-famous Red Rooster in Harlem. He's a James Beard Award winner, a philanthropist, a food activist. He's cooked for presidents and prime ministers. And he's here not just to talk about being a black chef, but about the power of black cuisine. That's what his most recent book is all about. It's called The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. For Marcus, His own rise is uniquely American. A black kid born in Ethiopia, raised by white parents in Sweden, who came to America to make it as a chef. Sounds complex, doesn't it? Because it is. He's faced some limits, but he got up early every day with complete clarity about what he wanted to achieve. And whatever you're doing in life, that's a recipe for success. Here's my conversation with Marcus Samuelson. Marcus, I... uh... I was talking to one of my friends today uh, who's a, a chef at our restaurant. I own one downtown, Alphabet City. Sure. And I told him that I was going to be talking to you. And I've never heard you describe this way before. But he's like, yo, you're about to meet the Harlem Spike Lee. <laughs> I'm like, the Harlem Spike Lee? What do you mean? He's like, yo, you got to check out the way Marcus dresses. He's just, he's one of the flyest dressers I've ever met. <laughs> and then I see you now, you got the hat, the orange hat on. Yeah. Like, are, is colors always been your thing? Yeah, man. It's Africa, man. The motherland, you know, and in Africa, you know, what you wear, it's also tribal. It's, it's announcing where you're from, where's your parents from, something that's part of who you are. And it's not just something you put on. Do you know what I mean? And then you think yeah. about as black people, obviously, mm-hmm. there's a very dark history about why we, back in the day, had to look in a certain way. And then you move that forward all the way to mm-hmm. Trayvon and teenagers that, you know, a hoodie can be the difference. So I don't want to go dark on it, but like it really, for us as black people, there was always a reason why we dressed a certain way, always. And I feel like a lot of people don't understand us always trying to like talk about the why, right? Why are you doing this? You know, but, but end of the day, we had to, you know. But, uh, yeah, you know what's crazy about it? I, the sense of, when you say Africa to me, mm-hmm. I've never been back to Africa. What? We gotta and go, I, I'll take I, you. I, 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 I would love to, but it's, it's funny because, you know, growing up, people used to say, yeah, this is being black. And I hear you talk about being black mm. and it carries a different kind of feeling to it. Not, not one that I really hear here as much as I hear you describe what Africa is. Mm. Well, you know, it's black is so vast, right? We're so diverse and in trusted spaces. We allow our diversity to flourish. In certain times, we're very often presented as monolithic, but we everything but, right? 
the challenge is that our opportunities to present ourselves for a long time was just so small. So we we only got the opportunity to present ourselves through music, sometimes through sports, very rarely through intelligentsia. You know, we're the only people where people expect us to be just be one thing, you know. But if you're Nigerian or Ethiopian, we're both from Africa, we just have very different starting points, culturally, uh, language, and what we eat, for example. And that's kind of been your mission with all of your restaurants. You've shared Black Cuisine not only through your Harlem spot, but your restaurants in Montreal, London, Sweden, the Bahamas. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, Marcus. But I have to ask you, the past couple of years, our restaurant industry was one of the hardest hit by the pandemic. So with so many places closing, what was that experience like for you? The day after you're closing a restaurant, Jay, you, don't, you, you just don't want everyone to leave your house again. It's, it's, it's a blend between the ultimate failure, defeat, and I've been there a couple of times. Obviously, I've been very successful with restaurants too, but these push and pulls keeps me always in check. Yeah, tell me about those days in the pandemic because it had to be. I mean, it was extremely challenging for us. I couldn't imagine you with the volume of restaurants you have. Yeah, it was the first week I felt an emotion blend between almost bitter. I was like, why is this happening? I can't understand it. And then fear what's going to happen to us. And when I mean us, my family, and then also the restaurant family. At this point was 1,800 people that work with me and the teams in seven different countries. What's going to happen? You know? And then once that week was over with of all these emotions, I am like, all right, you can't hide now. You just got to go out and deal with this and work every day. And then I called up my friend, Jose Andres, and he said, we got people, we can serve the community. Uh, We just need a place. And I was like, I got a place. I can bring in some people. And we started to serve our community, 200 people a day, 300 people a day, 500 people a day, 1,200 people a day, 1,500 people a day. Those six-hour days of just going to a place working, coming home, gloves off, mask off, putting your clothes in the laundry, showering, coming back down to my family. That was the only place of sanity because I just couldn't be inside, watch TV news and see how bad this was, right? So the human interaction I got between boxing food, sharing food, giving out, that became my sanity. And in doing that, I started then to realize, okay, I probably have to close this restaurant can probably hold on to this. What's going to happen to this person? And I started to be able to process and prioritize. Basically, months into it, I felt like, okay, we got this. We're going to be all right. How many did you have to close? I mean, it was all closed for, for a couple of months. For except, a while, yeah. yeah. And then eventually, we started to open stuff back up. But, you know, we realized we couldn't open London back up, and it's okay. You know, we had a great run. It's different country, different loss. Uh, and there's a couple of stores that we're just never going to open back up again. But for me, it was more about, well, let's make sure we help the people in those places, right? And and um, it's, it's, it was such a big experience for all of us. But I got a lot from working in Newark, working in Harlem, opening up 
Red Rooster Overtown in Miami, trying to provide jobs, trying to pass out food. So he gave me as much as we gave. You know what I mean? It was one of those things that when you only hear negative stuff on the news and you only, you can't even fathom the amount of people that have died from this, right? It's just the numbers are like 300,000, 500,000. Just to have something tangible to do every day was a blessing to me because it was what I've been doing since I was 17 years old. So I'm like, if you're going to take away this thing from me that I know that I'm good at and this is gone and my stuff, like that's not cute when you're 40 plus. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that's not. No, it's not. No. No, it's not. It's not. How did you, just because, um, you know, I, I've been to Red Rooster before and I, Absolutely love the spot. It's such a, and I heard you describe it as like a sticky feeling. Yeah, like you're you're in such close proximity to mm -hmm. people, and I, I feel like that's a lot of the experiences you've had. Mm -hmm. You may mention a mental health. How did you deal with the removal of that proximity to people? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it's, how'd you handle that at first during the onset of the pandemic? It was, you know, there's something that I learned that I've had couple of times, uh, post-traumatic growth, right? Post-traumatic growth. I deal with, I remember when my dad passed away, I went into double, triple mode of working. That's my way of processing uh, traumatic events in my life. A lot of people said, go away, don't do anything. I, I go up in higher gear, right? That's me. And we, that and, is so and, me. And I didn't know, a friend of mine told me this word, like told me there's a word for that, there's a sentence for that, and I didn't know that. So that's how I processed. And the busier I was, the better. And then as we kind of understood the pandemic, vaccine, all of these different things, I started to come back to normal, right? And out of this pandemic, me and my wife, we're going to have another baby. Gracie Thielpia. Gracie what Thielpia. a great yeah. name. So there's these things of jewels of love and joy that's coming out of it that if you would have asked me a year and a half ago that I just didn't know where we were. And it was scary. But I'm also grateful to be here having this conversation with you, understanding, learning about the new normal, and not fearing anything, but, you know, fear itself, basically. After the break, Marcus walks me through what he means when he says good food is a civil right. And how a tribe called Quest taught him how to think differently about how to make food. This is The Limits from NPR. I'm Jay Williams. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands. But because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow, 
It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. You said something the other day um, that caught my attention and it's something that I, I wrote down on my sheet. Good food is a civil right. Mm-hmm. Can you help me understand what that means? Sure. I feel like great food does not have a price point. It has a spirit, it has a soul, and everyone has the right to have access to great food. So sometimes when we for decades have only elevated European food, for example, what happens to Southeast Asian food, African food, South American food? Doesn't have a lot of belonging, doesn't have a meaning, doesn't have a value proposition. So we're in the middle of that right now. First recognizing that we were wrong that the media was wrong about that and and then it's about understanding that great food is everywhere whether you're in Peru, Ethiopia or South Carolina, right? And that takes some work to do and it takes Netflix, Food Network, uh, TikTok, it takes all of the above to post to talk about it and that's what's now finally is happening, right? Where like you see things like High on the Hog on Netflix that talks about the link between Africa and African-American food to the world, right? Otherwise, we will never see ourselves in it, right? Because what's not going to happen, it's not going to come from the other side saying, hmm, let me focus on this. If we don't big up our food and, and value it and support it and, and, and financially, but also through, through documentation, it will never happen. So it's very, very important that we talk about civil rights and food because um, otherwise you'll never get to an equal status. Yeah, and I think one of the directions you took in order to get there, your cookbook, The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul mm-hmm. of American Food, um, it led to a lot of conversations with my wife because, and a lot of conversations with people because I think sometimes with the way my wife has seen My wife is Lebanese and Italian, and sometimes the way she sees black cuisine Mm -hmm. is like a lot of margarine, things of that Mm -hmm. sort, right? Like all the flavor. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, that looks good, but I don't know if that really fits. How do you label black cuisine? Mm. What is black cuisine to you? It's vast, it's big. It's actually the first cuisine very often because Africa is the birthplace for humankind, right? And um, it also should be allowed to be many things. So... For your kids, it should be black cuisine to them will be Italian, Lebanese with the Southern migration part of it because that's was their experience. And no one can tell them when they're cooking for their families, you know, 2042, that that wasn't their black experience. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. So we need to allow ourselves to evolve. And that's for me why music is so important, right, to peg it to because, you know, jazz gave us sort of like this esoteric, but very skilled craftsmanship of, of music, James Brown, and then you're fusing that 
And then eventually that becomes hip hop. And then eventually you have stuff like tribe and stuff like that, right? But through music, you can evolve, right? Food has also evolved because once we left Africa and we came to South Carolina, and then the migration took us all over the States, of course our food evolved. And we have to allow ourselves to, for blackness can evolve as well. One of the guys in the book, Eric Estelle, his wife is Japanese. So their kid's going to be, you know, they're going to grow up with maybe broken rice from South Carolina as a sushi roll, but maybe they want a vegan sushi roll and maybe they're doing collards on that. And that's their <laughs> black experience. You know what I mean? Oh, it's really brilliant when you think, I don't know why. I've, man, it, it almost disappoints me that I've been so limited in my own scope of how I used to see it compared to now how you are enlightening me to see it. Well, I mean, it's also if you haven't seen these examples officially, right? Sometimes that's why commercial and underground and street food and all of it, it's so important because it helps you realize, I tasted that. The next variation of a taco might be a Filipino black taco because that's the next generation of kids, right? But if you never heard of it and seen it, you're like, nah, that can't be done, you know? Do you feel as if because we're becoming an increasingly more diverse world, that the culture of black cuisine is becoming more acceptable? Well, I mean, I don't look for acceptance from that because existing is, you know, we're being, you know. Maybe not accepted. Accepted was the wrong word. Excuse me. Celebrated. Celebrated. That's a better word for yes. it. Yes. But we do need what's happening now. We do need all of the platforms to share it, Right. Because if you're 11 and you're thinking about this, if you're 15 and you want to go into something, and you're 18 and you're thinking about, I can do a little catering gig here. You need, that's why you need role models. You need, be, you need to be able to see the, you know, Naishas, the Nina Comptons, whatever it is, that's possible. It's first acknowledging the past, right? We wouldn't be here without the elders who did the, the hard lift for us. Staying in the present, here are the icons and the new ones coming up, and then looking at the future because past, present, future is key, right? Um, and now it's up to the next gen then to say, okay, let me take this on TikTok or let me take this on whatever it is and bring it. So that's why I'm like, whenever I get invited to something young, cool, and food, I'm not there to judge it whether I like it or not because it might not be for me, but I'm there to support them because whatever they're doing, doing right now, right? If Cool Herc wasn't supported by his sister and his family, that wouldn't be the biggest art form that we today call hip-hop. It wouldn't be there. One of the reasons I love talking to Marcus is because he's a guy who knows where he's from. He knows his roots. He can just rattle off great black artists, writers, musicians. But that connection to history, it didn't come easy. Because when he was just two years old, he lost his family to a pandemic and was taken out of Nigeria. After the break, Marcus reconnects with his roots to imagine a whole new future for himself. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality, so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. 
Don't settle. Find love at first drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. Take, take me back. Like, how did you... How did you end up from Ethiopia to Sweden? I was born in Abrogorena, which is this tiny village, two hours drive outside Addis, the capital. And um, we were the poorest of the poor. And we were farmers. Me and my sister were born. Uh, There was a huge tuberculosis epidemic at the time. My mother, my sister, and myself, we got tuberculosis. She walked us in to the capital, not only did she walk two kids in, she found a hospital that was associated with a Swedish mission. So we, we, we survived it, but my mom died. So that was the last thing she did, took us in. So that's how rough the walk was. And now you have a kid that is like two-ish, and you have, my sister was like four, and the nurse there was like, what's going to happen to these kids? But think about this, Jay. Like, yeah. when I say the amount of luck that been unknown, juju, luck, I'd never want to take that out of anyone's journey, right? Because when I say, and goodness of others, right? So the nurse at the hospital knew that we can't just put these kids on the street. So she took us in which she wasn't even legally allowed to do. She just took us. And she said, I'm going to hold you guys here until I connect you with an adoption agency. Right? And so, so the way the world works today, that couldn't have happened, right? Like, it's just not. You can't just grab two kids. You know what I mean? But she set us up. Yeah. We got adopted about six months later. And then we went from being Kasahun and Fantai to Linda and Marcus. And then we got adopted to Sweden. You know, uh, I was actually listening to a podcast this morning on my way into work. And, um, you know, for me, a lot of times my brain would be all over the place. And listening to this, it happens to center me. And when you start hearing you manifest the vibrations you give off, it's one of the most powerful things. And you, you just made mention of that, right? Like, cause it's easy for it to go towards dark very quickly. But when you learn how to operate that and you give off, like you receive that continuously and wealth and when did you recognize that or figure that out i think it's gone through stages right you know being a black kid being raised by white parents i knew that i was loved i also knew that 
they didn't know my experience constantly, but I knew that they loved me, even if it was clumsy, right? But, you know, there were white parents, like, like fixing our hair. It took them years to figure out how to deal with our hair, right? And if, if my dad went to London, my mom was always like, don't come back without an ebony because there's, you know, there's black hair ads in that. And my mom could, like, read English, and she could, like, <laughs> let's figure it out. And if he forgot, he was on a business trip, not even close to London. My mom's like, you don't have an ebony. I was like, I was in Glasgow. <laughs> and she's like, well, what are you coming back for then? You know? So it's like, uh, it's, it's like, it's funny. And like, we dealt with a lot of things because we have to laugh at it because laugh yeah. at ourselves as a tribe, because within the whole family, we didn't have it figured out. Right. But once we left the house, oh, we were dapper. We were confident. We were, we were representing well. Otherwise we couldn't leave the house, you know? So I think, I got a lot of my confidence in how to deal with the world outside so much from my parents, even to the point where when we got adopted, my dad was like, we got to give the kids international names because they most likely would not live in Sweden. And that's in the 70s. He, he understood that chances are that these guys will leave Sweden and grow up somewhere, live somewhere else because of the, I'm raising black kids. So Linda and Marcus, anyone can say that anywhere in the world, boom, that's their name. And then at 15, 16, my dad gave me uh, Malcolm X by Alex Haley. And that was hugely influential on my life. I'm like, I knew then that I'm, I'm moving to America. I didn't know when I would go to America, but I knew eventually I would go to America. Your Swedish parents gave you a book about Malcolm X mm -hmm. that gave you the inclination that you knew you were moving to America. Mm -hmm. I, I, that's profound. You have to understand what, what black culture produced in America, right? That get transcends to all of the world. And when you're in America, it's very hard to understand the weight that that puts, the inspiration, the aspirations. You know, all our aspirational people were black in my household. My parents were white, but what was given to us, if there were books, it was Maya, Angelo. If there was music, it was Marvin, Bob, or Prince, right? Or Maya Makebo Filakuti. Right. Yeah. There was wow. if there was everything was around here are the magical people. Here's what your icons are look like. This is what we're striving for. And because that you could consume this. Right. You can get it. Right. What the stars does. And that's why I'm so excited now through Internet that people can have a uh, they can see themselves in different fields. Right. Whether it's there is like a Virgil in fashion, for example. Right. And God bless his soul. RIP, of course. And or like in anything, in food or whatever, not just these subcultures, not just this culture that operates on the sort of most visible stage, but also if you want to be an astronaut, okay, you can find that it was black astronauts, for example. All these things that we didn't know about before, you now have access points to. But you didn't have that at first when it came to cooking. Mm -hmm. You didn't have somebody that was brown that you could look up to physically, in the physical sense, and say, Help me. So how'd you navigate that? Oh, I made up my own. So for me, a big one was uh, Basquiat, Jean-Michel Basquiat, the painter. Because yeah. I was like, who is this guy? He made it in the art world, doing street art. And he created his own language, basically. What? What? Is this even possible? And the fact that it wasn't a music or sport made it even bigger to me. I was like, whoa, this is some dude, right? Um, culturally... 
a lot of this was listening to Fat Five Freddy, wa- you know, watching like hip hop could be done. I thought hip hop was only a New York thing. So when somebody showed that you could have hip hop in LA or, or see hip hop in Cleveland, I didn't believe it until Freddie put it on. That was like, okay, if he tells me that's what's happening, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I didn't understand the language. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was like looking at really through MTV and aspiring and seeing Tribe Called Quest was a huge moment to me because I, they were like just a couple of years older than me. I was like, what am I doing? What am I doing? If, if Q can put this thing together, I can't afford to be here and I got to go. I got I to gotta get out. So when did food come into your journey? Early, early. I mean, my grandmother was cooking with me. If you went to grandma's house, you basically accepted child labor. Like, that was it. You pulled up to her, you know, you biked <laughs> over to her house because she grew up very poor. So she started work at 11 at someone. She was, I mean, she was born when Sweden was a poor country. So she was a white lady that was a domestic. Think about that. That was my grandma. So although they were middle class and upper middle class eventually, their DNA is out of poverty. Right, so you don't waste anything. Like you, don't, you know, you have chicken one day. Crazy efficient, yeah. yeah. You have chicken soup. You know, we're gonna make the most of this. We're gonna make the most of it, and you know, like she made our clothes. The only thing she couldn't make was sneakers. So when I went to like got my, you know, Converse or Nikes, she's like, damn, can't make that. But Levi's, we didn't have Levi's. She made jeans. She pulled up. Okay, that's what you want. That's well, incredible. We went to the store. Didn't I thought I would get a pair of Levi's? She's like, we're going home. What do you mean? She's like, no, I'm going to make them. Two days later, you have a pair of jeans. It's like D. She's all the above. Yes. She can do everything you need. Yeah. But it's, it's incredible. But it's not fun to go to school with almost Levi's. That's not <laughs> a good. <laughs> or double L on the Levi's. because she. Found I got another. one look. I got one look. <laughs> so, but it's a good look, though. It's a good look. Now it's vintage. Now it's everything. Yeah. <laughs> but 1982, trying to talk to that girl? No, 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 no back but anyway we made again like we had fun like that i think through comedy through just confidence you know it was it was a lot you know that's how we dealt with all that trauma because it was a lot of isms too and we just had to navigate through it you know and one of the things i um growing up that's given me peace of mind and just to translate your your fun and the energy right Mm -hmm. whenever i get in the kitchen with my mom and there's Sade playing. Yes. There's Patty LaBelle. Anita, probably. You, you already know. Yes. And there's this feeling that I'm like, yeah, I got my hands. My hands are dirty, and I'm like, I can't even cook. Yeah. Hands are dirty. I just and it's it's such a magical yes. moment between people. Yes. Because of the intimacy. Is that what you're? Yes. Describing with your grandmother. Yes. And everything, everything like. We were foraging, we were picking berries, we were preserving berries. It was story, it was all around storytelling. And that I actually had a role that being the youngest, you know, you were never good enough for anything. But with my grandmother, I could go down to the basement and get her the jars. I could, you know, add value. I was like, oh, okay, let me do this, you know? <laughs> and that was fun. And then I also got a lot of confidence from it. Like when I became, was a teenager and my weekend jobs were always in restaurants. And they're like, he's really good. And, you know, being raised by two older sisters, you never knew ever if you were good at anything. Because according to them, mm-hmm. you were never good, right? But but I was like, wow, I can have value here. Well, look, man, um, I really appreciate you giving us your time. I know, congrats again on Zion, on Grace. Incredible kids, your wife, your businesses, what you're doing, how you think about it, how empathetic 
you are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would hear people always say there's levels to this. And I, I got to tell you, I'm walking away understanding, wow, I just reached a couple of different levels Thank you. with you. Thank you, Jay. And, and thank um, you for everything you do in your community. And congrats to everything you've achieved. And I know we're only in the beginning of your journey. So I know that, you know, I can't wait to see what's on the other side. And then eventually have a drink and just have a break bread with you and your family. All right? I'll see you soon, my friend. Proud of you, man. We will connect soon, soon. for sure. Peace. A big shout out to Marcus and his whole team for making this happen. And if you want to know Marcus's secrets for success in your kitchen, be sure to subscribe to The Limits Plus. He tells me all about the basics for making any meal a five-star success. You don't want to miss it. And you can also catch more in Marcus's book, The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. The Limits is produced by Karen Kinney, Mano Sundarason, Lena Sunsgary, Barton Girdwood, Brent Bachman, Rachel Neal, Yolanda Sanguini. Our executive producer is Anya Grunman. Music by Ramteen Arab Louie. Special thanks to Charlotte Riggi and Aaron Register. I'm Jay Williams. Keep it moving and stay positive. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at betterhelp.com NPR to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor, State Farm. If you're a small business owner, it isn't just your business, it's your life. Whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's where State Farm Small Business Insurance comes in. State Farm agents are small business owners, too, and know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.